Thank you all very much for being here today. The title of this talk is No Should Be. And this has been coming up a lot for me recently during my sitting. And I've been coming at it from the approach of trying to investigate delusion. I've found in some respects of my life, it's been easier for me to try and understand the way things aren't rather than the way things are. Uh, one way I kind of picture this in my head is, you know, if you have a, a, the core of a planet or something and then some layers of rock on top of it, there's something down inside all of it and the layers of the rock kind of conform to its shape, but they aren't the core itself. So that's kind of how I've been at least mentally picturing these delusions is they're solid, they're real in a way, and they are related to truth, what we may call truth, or maybe just not delusion. They're kind of formed by it, but there's, they're a little easier for me sometimes to kind of pick out. I like using questions as, you know, are you sure? How do you know? Not always so are kind of some common ones from some Zen teachers. The other one I like is, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but the kind of theme of the delusions that have been very present for me in my practice recently is, can be summed up with, I think, probably everyone, one of everyone's favorite words, which is should. Everyone loves that word. We use it a lot. I've been paying attention to how many times I say should in just day-to-day -day life since I've been working on this talk. It's a lot. Uh, just in your head, in my speech, just feeling. Like even I may not even use the word, but I just feel the should. Just, you know, I don't, I don't do something what I think the, quite the right way, and then just my body is just, that should be a little different. I should do that a little differently. So shoulds have been really, really present for me. And last week, Mado talked about busyness and how one of these components of our busyness is all the selves that we construct to match the different conditions and situations we're in, our different relationships, and how each kind of maintaining each of those selves makes us very busy. And I'd like to bring in another dimension to just this building of these cells and how each of these cells carries with them a whole set of shoulds, every single one, just a whole list of shoulds, both from yourself, what you think it should be from external sources, from the relations, people with whom you have relations, what they think it should be, what society writ large thinks it should be. So lots of these shoulds. I'm a PhD student. I should behave a certain way. I'm a Dharma teacher. I should act a certain way. I should have a certain amount of compassion and wisdom and you know, be very open and all this shoulds. I'm apprenticing to be a Dharma teacher. My Dharma talks should be a certain way. I don't want them to be too academic. They should be more loosey-goosey. 
there's just so many things. I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm an employee. Each one, just a laundry list of shoulds. And as we start to expand out and just order all these selves we have, each of them with a whole big list of shoulds, it becomes pretty heavy. There's a lot of, there's a lot of shoulding going on in our society, and we, we do it to ourselves. We kind of, we should all over ourselves, mm. <laughs> often. And I think this can, like any, like, like everything, this can be helpful, but more often than not, I think we tend to, at least I, I certainly do, um, you can all decide for yourself, but at least I certainly take what started off as helpful and turn it into something that creates a lot of suffering in my life. Unnecessarily so, but we'll get to that part. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, Taishin was speaking about anger or strong emotions in our practice. I'm a Buddhist. I shouldn't get angry. I'm a Buddhist. I should be loving and calm and at ease and peaceful. I should, I should, I should. And in his talk, he offered one of the formulations of the ninth precept, which is about harboring anger. And he gave Bodhidharma's, a trans, one of the translation of Bodhidharma's formulation of that precept, which read, self-nature is subtle and mysterious in the realm of the selfless dharma, not contriving reality for the self is called the precept of not indulging in anger. And shoulds are very much a way that we can try to contrive reality. I think this should be done a certain way. I should bow a certain way. I should have done better on my last assignment. I should be more charismatic. I should go to parties more. Whatever your pick your should. We're taking what we think reality should be, which isn't necessarily what it is, and we're trying to bend it to our will in a, in a way. And so Bodhidharma would offer that this is a form of anger. And I think there are times shoulds are very overtly angry. Our president should know better. People shouldn't act this way. They shouldn't have put all those traffic construction signs blocking <laughs> off the road so I could mail my sewing. There's this really kind of hot anger that can come up when something's different from the way you think it should be. But I think there's kind of the overt case, but a lot of shoulds, and this is definitely where they kind of come in for me, is there, instead of you know a raging flame or something like that, they're kind of a hot ember. They're just kind of there. When, oh, I should have done better. It's not the spirit of that should when I say it to myself isn't, oh, I, you know, you tried your best. We'll, you know, have another approach. We'll try again. It's no, you should have done better. You should have known better. You should have been better. And so it's just a little, just a little bit of anger in there. And with how often I should on myself, those kind of add up. Like it's, you know, just maybe one little one-off 
oh, I should have done, should have done that better. Not necessarily too bad, but when you're just kind of doing it all day and when others are doing it to you, just your bosses, oh, you should work a little harder or you should <clears throat> write your thesis faster or anything. It's just, it's just kind of this accumulation that happens and it really sinks into us and we start to believe it and think it's kind of a core, we have some core deficiency that we should make up for, that we lack something. And because I love shooting on myself, I thought I would give you a few examples of how I do it in my life. Maybe you'll hear some similarities to things you do in yours, or you will just think I'm crazy, which is fair. <laughs> so I'm a PhD student right now, and I'm writing my thesis. And to give you a little context, I kind of went from doing lab work for basically since I was an undergraduate, so about 10, year, 10 years, over to just writing. It was kind of full stop in the lab work, just switched over entirely to writing. So I went from this environment where there's very clear, defined tasks. Take this measurement, do this, do this, you know, tighten this bolt, put this thing together, design this part. Very clear and contained to this very nebulous, write a couple hundred page document summarizing your time in graduate school that four people are going to read, maybe. <laughs> and this kind of threw me off because all these shoulds that I was used to in the lab environment were really not that applicable in a way. And so I had to kind of create my own, okay, I should. So I started off with, I should write 10 pages a week. Where did that number come from? I have no idea. <laughs> It was, it's a round even number, I guess. And so I just thought, okay, 10 pages a week. That seems reasonable. So I'll, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so I'll, I'll go for that. The first couple of weeks, I was writing 15 pages a week. I was flying really high. I was like, wow, this, this thesis thing, I'm going to have this done two months tops. It's so easy. You know, then next couple of weeks, not quite making it to 10 pages. I'm like, okay, that's, that's okay though, because I did a 15 pages for a couple of weeks, so the average is still good. <laughs> but then, as things change, just the way they do, I, didn't, I kept not getting to 10 pages. And suddenly, I was getting really frustrated. Just, Why am I not getting 10 pages? I, this is my goal. I should get 10 pages. I should be writing more. I should be making more progress. And now, and for me, I get tunnel vision. I really zoom in on the should. So instead of seeing, all right, I didn't get 10 pages that week. I should have written more. Instead of seeing, well, that week you went to New Hampshire and saw your sister get married. Of course you didn't write 10 pages. You got to do something way cooler. <laughs> you see your sister get married and I'm over here thinking, oh, I should have written more in my thesis. <laughs> Nuts. But I, I just kind of zoom in on this completely arbitrary number. And so often I start off knowing that this is an arbitrary number. But it somewhere in there it transitions into what I think is reality. It's like it's that, it's that layer that hardens on top of the core. It's like, hmm, well, I'm not getting to 10 pages and that's just the way things are. 
things should be, it's 10 pages a week, that's the number. No, it isn't. It's absolutely not the number. I could write one page a week and it would be fine probably and take me a little while, but the, but it, it just, it's a really subtle transition for me. And so when I would miss this arbitrary goal and start shooting on myself, instead of having the effect of making me feel more productive and getting after it, like, oh, I didn't make my goal. I'll work harder. I'll do better. I'll be better. I started to feel kind of bad about myself. And who would have thought that makes writing a little harder when you're in a bad mood and you're just constantly nagging yourself and not allowing yourself to enjoy things. That's another component, by the way, of thesis writing that I had to adapt to the lab. You can't really bring, you know, a 10,000 square foot clean room back to your house, which is awesome. Because that means when you leave, I can't do that. I'm not at work. <laughs> I just physically can't do my job. But with the thesis, it's like, you have your laptop anywhere you go, buddy. You could be, you could be writing right now. Anywhere you go, could be writing. So that kind of nice line I could draw of work, not work, just poof, completely gone. And I would just, it, this just made me miserable. And it all came about from this really arbitrary number I picked. I mean, some people, you know, their advisor hounds them like, oh, you got to write a thesis. You got to defend. I can't fund you that much longer. You got to get out the door. My advisor, completely the opposite. He's, his philosophy is you should have as much time as you want to write your thesis. That is, you know, the, the crown achievement of your graduate career. And you should be allowed that. So there's no external pressure. It was all me. And... So the system I had tried to create to be productive had the exact opposite effect, but I attached to it, really, really attached to it, is this is the way things should be. This is the way things are. I should be this. And because I attached to it when things inevitably changed, it caused a lot of suffering for me. Uh, I'm still working with that. I'm, I've been fine-tuning the thesis writing approach, and I think I'm starting to hone in. <laughs> but every time I come up with a new system, it's always, oh, I'm really excited. This is going to be the system that works really well. This, is, this one's going to be great. It's going to be different this time. And then it's not, but... So every time now, when I, when I go into it, I just have a little, little flag go off in my brain of, okay, okay, Dagon, this is going to be the system you're going to try, but you're going to try and hold it really, really, really lightly, and know that it's not a real thing. It's something you've created, and it should be helpful, but it, things will change. <clears throat> my success rate's okay on that one. Uh, I really like attaching to my routines. It's, it's very, it's been, I've been just trying to figure out why I do that, and I've come to some ideas or conclusions, but this kind of behavior pattern shows up in a lot of aspects of my life. When I create a workout routine, something as simple as that, and you know, this thing that supports you to exercise, you know, which is great for your health and has all these wonderful things, it's very wholesome, suddenly 
becomes, oh, I need to work out today, I need to work out tomorrow, and if I don't work out tomorrow, oh, then I'm not going to be able to go to the grocery store on Wednesday, and I really got to go to the grocery store on Wednesday, because I can only go to the, way, to the grocery store on Wednesday, because that's the way it should be. And so if I don't go to the grocery store on Wednesday, then that means I have to wait till next Wednesday to go to the grocery store. <laughs> and it's just this whole story comes out of it. And it's, no, you can go to the grocery store any day of the week. It's, 10, it's a 10-minute drive. But it's, I lock in so hard. On, no, I can't go to the grocery store because it's not Wednesday. And groceries happen on Wednesday. And then laundry's on Sunday. And so if I don't do laundry on Sunday for some reason, I'm not going to have clean clothes. I can't. There's no other times I can do laundry. And so this pattern really trickles in. It happened, came into my practice. Mando and I have had multiple dogus on talking about, well, you know, I sit in the morning and I sit in the evening and then, you know, I read and then I sew and so I have to do this and it becomes this checklist of, okay, I have to do my morning sit and then I have to do my morning dogan and then I have to do my morning sewing and when things inevitably come up in your life, it's all of a sudden, oh, I didn't do, I didn't do my sitting today in, my, in the morning and so I'm grouchy. And, oh, I should have sat. I should be, you know, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist. I should be sitting. And suddenly the great gate of peace and joy becomes <laughs> <laughs> this ball, I've, you know, ball and chain. I'm just attached to my ankle. And, and who's attaching it to the ankle? It's not Mado. It's not any of you. No one's there saying, sit right now. You have to sit right now. It's me. I'm the one doing it. And it just kind of co-ops these very wholesome intention things. And it kind of sucks the life out of them in a way. Just kind of makes them rote. You don't really have to pay attention so much. And that's where I think, for me anyway, I do this is because it's a form of laziness. So last week, Mado said the Tibetans call, you know, when someone's so busy, it's actually a form of laziness because they don't have to really engage and be present and aware of what they're doing. They can just kind of hop from one thing to the next, constantly moving from one self to another self to another self not really thinking about each of those things and really being present with them. And I think should, at least the way I use, the way I'm talking about, there's a whole thing to talk a lot about shoulds in a lot of different contexts, but at least within this kind of personal context of my life, the way that I think the, one of the reasons I use these shoulds and build these routines is so that I don't, it's laziness in a way. In a way, um, I like also like the word, I think aversion is a good word for it. But when I have this routine, okay, I know what days I'm going to work out. I know when I'm going to do my laundry. I know I'm going to go to the store and I know how many words I'm going to write every day. I've got my week done. I don't have to think about it anymore. I can just sort of sleepwalk in a way. So, okay, what's today? Today's Monday. That means I do this, 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 and this. And I just kind of go through the motions. I don't really have to engage with what I'm doing. It's just, oh, it's Monday and it's 5 p.m. So I'm done with work and now it's time to work out. Okay, I know exactly what I should be doing. I don't have to think about what do I feel like doing? Do I feel like working out today? 
maybe I'm really tired today and I feel like eating a pint of ice cream instead. Or maybe I feel like sitting or maybe I feel like going for a walk, but no, it's workout time. So I got to go do that. So instead of kind of being present with the conditions in my life at the time, I can just sort of zone out. And when I think about kind of why another reason, the going a little deeper into why I kind of zone out like that or sleepwalk a little bit is for about 10 years, I had really serious depression that I wasn't treating at all. No one even really knew I had it. Uh, and so I was just constantly drained. I felt so drained of energy and everything was so hard to do that it just took a lot. So creating these routines where I didn't have to put the energy into, all right, what am I going to do today? What am I going to do tomorrow? Freed me up to, I mean, that was my baseline energy level was low. So I just kind of had to be economical with how I was spending my time and attention. And that, in a way, was wholesome. I mean, I wasn't treating my depression. That wasn't so great. But I was using these systems to take care of myself as best as I could at that time in my life. And we fast forward through that period to, I've you know, been seeing a counselor for a couple of years. I've started practicing Zen and taking all these steps to kind of take care of my mental health, my physical health, my spiritual health. And you know, I have this wonderful community and you know, a, lot, a really nice support network so I'm just in a much better place, but those habits of creating those systems to free me from having to spend energy on certain things are still in place because I got really good at them for 10 years and I really did them. And a lot of, you know, because it happened over such a long time, it was a gradual change. It just sort of snuck in there and then solidified before I even knew it. And so this thing that isn't real in a really in a very deep sense you know it's real in that it's I've constructed it but it's exactly I've constructed it but in my head it transitions over into that's just the way things are that's how things should be and yeah it just creates it can create a lot of suffering and just think about in our lives, all these different selves that we wear or try out for a little bit. Okay, I want to be a PhD student. Here's my list of things I should be. You know, I should be productive in doing research. I should be publishing papers. I should be mentoring undergraduates. I should be teaching, blah, 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 blah. Okay, great. That's what a PhD student does. I can go down that checklist and do those things and know that I'm a good PhD student. Or, you know, I want to be a doctor. What's a good doctor? Good bedside manner, knows, I don't know, knows your diseases, whatever doctors do. Um, sorry to if any one of my family is listening because they're all in the <laughs> medical profession. And I don't know what you do. <laughs> but 
you know, recharge some stuff. <laughs> Get things stat. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's, there's, this, there's kind of a, a template for you or a mold to kind of fit yourself into. I want to be a Dharma teacher. All right. Well, there's the, the Soto school that we practice in. They have, uh, at least in the, the Western, I don't know, organization for the Soto school, has this guidebook of, you know, what a Zen priest should look like. And it's insane. <laughs> the, the list. Like, you should be funny. You should be wise. You should like, be like, full of energy. You should be alert. You should be compassionate. You should have a deep understanding of the Dharma. You should take care of the Sangha. You should have a really nice Zendo. You know, you should have just all these things. It's just like, oh yeah, you should be a master of Dogen. You should know Dogen like at the back of your hand. And it's just, it's absolutely insane. It's just no one could be all of these things. But it's, when they kind of present this to you, it gives you a mold that you can fit yourself into. And it's, I'm not saying to do away with all these things entirely. A lot of these things are useful and helpful to know. Okay, I want to be a good doctor. Well, there's been a lot of doctors in the past, and people have been able to figure it out. What, what's good stuff, what's wholesome, what's helpful, what's skillful, what's not. Okay, I can use that as a reference. Or what's a good teacher look like? I can use that as a reference. But ultimately you're the one who has the say. And there is no real, this is what the ideal teacher looks like. This is what the ideal PhD student looks like. It's this thing that we've made and then we try to mold ourselves to. But as, and I think there's sort of, I used the word economical earlier, as we have so many selves and are so busy these days, it becomes almost a necessity to just, you kind of have to prioritize or ah, I'll use a medical word. You have to triage. <laughs> That's important. That needs, you know, my immediate attention. This, oh, that I can, that can, I don't need to think about that too much. I can, I can just kind of coast on that. And, but this is really important. That other thing, I don't need to think about that for like three months. I just, I just not worry about it. But with all these things and selves that we're juggling, these kind of templates and shoulds and profiles we build, we can kind of just check out in a way. Just, okay, I can, I can free myself up from having to really think about how I want to be a good mother, how I want to be a good partner, how I want to be a good whatever. I can just reference this template or this mold, and if the mold doesn't fit quite right, I can just push it in really hard. I can make the circle fit into the, the square peg if I push really hard. Um, and so the, yeah, these shoulds and routines are helpful and or can be helpful and are useful for us. But I think we need to be very, at least I certainly need to be very mindful of how I relate to them instead of being, becoming very fixed as making them really solid like this is what it should be a nice clear picture and that's it i figured it out and it's never going to change that's how i like to relate to them but 
that's not really our practice of, of fixing to things as if they're, as if they're permanent. And we, over the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing about our root teacher, Kobin Chino Otagawa Roshi, or Kobin, as he preferred to be named, or preferred, preferred to be referred to uh, as. And this morning we read his introduction to what is Zazen, or Shikantaza. And in it, I'll just reemphasize a couple passages that he has in here, is he says again and again that there is no should-be sort of thing. However you manage your daily life, that is how it should be. However you are is the way it should be. He talks about people training in the monastery having a hard time with almost no rules in, in practice. He says, whoever sits that person's mind embraces the whole situation centered by that person. So each person has full responsibility and full understanding by themselves for what sitting means to them. The teaching is within that person. Each person's sitting includes how they live, how they think things, where they are actually living, and where they came from. Nothing is missed and nothing is needed to change from how you are actually living to how it should be. There is no should be kind of thing. In one sense, it's a terrible state, the hardest kind of situation. Imagine not having these should templates. You, you really kind of have to figure it out for yourself. It's hard. You know, what's, a, what's a good mother look like? What's a good Buddhist look like? What's a good son look like? And you don't have this kind of template of that's what these things look like. It's I have to decide. You know, I have to choose what these things look like for me at this particular time. So that's hard. And he says, there is no crutch, nothing to hang on to, to order your mind. I say you cannot call this Zen or Buddhism. Then what is it? People get mad at me. They ask, then what are you? To have no identification is so insecure in one sense. People are very shaky sometimes. But as you, do, as you notice, no one forces you or orders you to do this. So in, in that, in a lot of his other teachings, there's a very deep trust that he has in each of us. He trusts us to know what is appropriate for us. The teaching is within that person. It's us. The teaching's in each of us. A couple weeks ago, Mato spoke about how we live in an expert society. There's lots of experts of things. You know, I want to I wanna know how to eat better. Well, let me find, I have a great nutritionist. They're really an expert in their field. I want to know how to exercise better. Oh, I have a great trainer. They're an expert. I have a weird thing on my neck. Oh, I have a great dermatologist. <laughs> They're an expert. Now, obviously, we shouldn't just ignore experts and throw that all out the window and just do what we think is right. That would be arrogance. But there's 
a certain point where it's you are the expert on your life and what is appropriate for you. But we don't really trust ourselves. We have to think someone, I need someone to tell me what's appropriate for me. I need someone to tell me what's right here instead of asking ourselves. Coben once asked the question to some people, when all the teachers are gone, who will be your teacher? And one of the students said, everything. Coben replied, no, you. You will be the teacher. So our practice, I think, is to constantly engage with our lives and continuously change with the causes and conditions. And when we're in here and we're sitting, we sit, we take a posture, but we don't rigidly hold to that posture. You're not flexing all your muscles and trying to keep the perfect posture, you know, the, the, how, how you should sit. You see, you look it up and you see all these nice pictures of people in the full lotus. And got really straight back and their neck's just right and their head and everything looks so soft. And it looks just like, wow, that's incredible. Uh, but so he's like, okay, I really want to look like that. So he kind of flex up and work really hard. I mean, I can't do full lotus, not even close. So I'd, I'd break my legs if I tried that. But you tr- there's no real fixed posture that, you, that we try to maintain. But at the same time, we're also not just completely relaxed and head droopy and sleeping. So one Zen teacher I've heard describes sitting as balancing tension and relaxation. Uh, Buddha described right effort, like tuning a guitar where you want the string to have just the right amount of tension. Too much tension, eh, it's going to snap. Not enough tension, it's going to be all droopy and not going to sound really nice. And so when we're sitting, kind of constantly making little adjustments of, ooh, my shoulder came up a little too high, I'll relax it back down, or I started to slouch a little bit, I'll straighten my spine back up. And I think this mirrors our life. You know, as we're constantly kind of flowing through life, we can just be making adjustments. Oh, I'm not going to get to laundry today. <laughs> That's okay. The washing machine will be there tomorrow. I will, I will take care of it tomorrow instead of, well, I can only do laundry on Sundays. So not till next Sunday. But, and in lots of, this shows up in all aspects of our life where we can just constantly just shift and adjust and meet things as they are, meet people as they are. And so I found making this sort of change to going from how something should be and really locking into it to acting a certain way because I'm choosing to do so, not something I have decided previously and I'm holding myself to, but in that moment, I'm making a conscious choice or I'm just with my whole being choosing, all right, this is what I'm going to do right now. This is what I am needing right now. Makes all the difference. It makes it feel this exact same task suddenly feels, has a kind of a liberated quality to it rather than being this, you know, shackle that I have on my ankle, that great gate of peace and joy when I'm choosing to sit. I'm choosing to practice. I'm choosing to sit down on the cushion. It's not because I have to sit in the mornings. 
I sit in the morning and I sit in the evenings. I have to do that. It's, I didn't feel like sitting in the morning. I was super tired. I felt terrible. <laughs> so <clears throat> maybe later in the evening when I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm feeling pretty good. Now I'll sit. And even just that little change of that orientation, how we relate to it, makes it feel way better. <laughs> it just feels... It, it goes back to being that great gate of peace and joy, even when it's excruciating and your legs hurt and you're bored and you want to be doing anything else. So Coben had this deep trust in us, and I think we can kind of get an example of this spirit from other ways that he taught. So Coben grew up in a, from, he was born into a family of Zen priests. So he kind of, he grew up in that environment and from a young, I think he started meditating when he was, I think something like three? At a very young age. Uh, I remember he said that they would like roll around as kids in the full lotus. <laughs> just roll around on the floor with their legs in full lotus. But, you know, he lost his father when he was seven or eight and he started studying Zen with a number of teachers. And then he trained at a Heiji, which is kind of the home temple for Soto. It's the temple Dogen founded. Trained there for a number of years before coming to the U.S. And over those years, he really has to, but he mastered the forms, how, you know, the ceremonies, you know, how to place incense, how things should be arranged, how you chant. He was originally, one of the reasons he was brought over to the U.S. by Suzuki was to train people at these new Zen centers how to do Oriyoki, how to do these ceremonies. Because he was really, really good at it. He came over for other reasons, of course, too. But that was one of them. But while he had this real ability to do these forms so well that I've, you know, just excruciating detail in them. Mado can tell you all about the detail in tea ceremony. Just that incredible amount of detail that every little thing you do is precise. So while Coben had this and was able to do this, a lot of the times he didn't do it at all. He completely changed up the form. So sometimes he would do a ceremony with all that exquisite detail, exactly as it should be done. He would put his whole being into that ceremony. And a lot of people, a lot of students and people who interacted with him, that's a lot of one of the things that they mentioned about him was just his incredible knack for this. But other times, he would purposefully change the order of things in the ceremonies. So students would you know, get used to me doing things in a certain order, and he would purposefully change that. He would flip it up and just kind of play around with it. In Jikoji, which is in California, one of the, someone there, you know, asked Coben to explain why they do certain things, and Coben kind of looked horrified, and he asked, what, what are you doing? Like, what things are you doing? And the, I forget who was asking, but the person said, oh, you know, the Heart Sutra, 
prostrations, this thing, that thing, the other thing. And Coven said, no, 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 no. Pick something new every single day. Pick a new thing to chant. Pick a new thing every single day. There's loads and loads of these examples. I've been reading this book, Remembering Coben, which is a bunch of remembrances from his students. And it's just chock full of all these different ways Coben did things. <laughs> and some of them are, you know, he had some students wear robes. You know, either these are called samue or more formal robes. He had them wear robes all the time, even when they're out in public. Other students never wore robes. Never once touched a robe. He once gave a student a brown roksu, like Mado's wearing, that is traditionally reserved for transmitted teachers. And the student was, <laughs> I'm not a transmitted teacher. What are you giving me this brown roksu for? Coben replied, well, when you're wearing it, you're invisible. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> Coben met people exactly as they were, and he responded in kind to that. He had no should-be for his students, no square bamboo. What was appropriate for each student at that time, at least how Coben understood what was appropriate for each student at that time, was how he responded to them. Now... One of Coben's passions was calligraphy. It's called shodo, which is the way of writing. I think also called the way of the brush, maybe, but I'm not super well-read in Japanese. And to bring in a little more of his spirit into this talk, I did a little calligraphy of a couple characters that I thought represented the talk. I've been doing calligraphy on and off for a couple months now, so... And not with a brush, I've been doing it with an Apple Pencil on my <laughs> iPad. I've done it with a brush once <laughs> here. Uh, but so, yeah, you know, it's, it's not traditional calligraphy, but there is no should be kind of thing. So the characters that I did here are Mudo, this top character. That's Mu. This bottom character is Do. So one way you might translate mu is lacking or without, not having. Do means path or way. So no path, no way. Another way you might translate this is this character mu is used to represent the Buddhist idea of emptiness, which is very spacious. There's no fixed form to something. One way that people have used as a metaphor to kind of describe emptiness as, is a mirror, where a mirror can have any number of colors, whatever is in the mirror, but it's no fixed color. It's constantly changing. It's not that it's nothing, but you can't also at the same time, you can't say it's exactly this. So that's, this character can mean emptiness. So just sort of empty, spacious, or boundless. In Do, way often mean this way means the way, not just a path, but the path. So there's Shodo, the way of writing, Kaido, the way of the bow, 
Sado, the way of tea, the way. And so this character is often used to represent Buddhist path as the way. So no way or no should be, if I can be a little, I can have some interpretation here. If anyone's listening who's an expert in Japanese and stuff like that, I apologize if I'm, <laughs> I'm taking artistic liberty. No should be or spacious way, boundless way, a way where we have room to move around or not locked into any fixed thing. It's very spacious. So I think Coben's way was a very spacious one where he gave his students a lot of room to find out things for themselves and how things should, in quotes, heavy quotes, be for themselves. And I think that was a way that spirit was transmitted to us here at Owan and something that we continue to carry on. So I'd like to invite all of you to perhaps sit with and explore Mudo in your lives. Just where in your life can you have a little more space? Where can you just have a little more room to breathe? What can you sit with and kind of come at from and let work it a little differently? Change your orientation to and give yourself space to do that. I'd like to close by reading uh, an excerpt from one of Coben's longtime students, Carolyn Atkinson, I believe. Yes, Carolyn Atkinson. So she had sat, and she and a group of other people had sat with Coben for over 30 years on and off. And during their last meeting with Coben, which they didn't know was their last meeting at the time, but Coben later passed away in an accident with his daughter. But at their last meeting with Coben, someone asked him a question that they'd asked him many times before, which was, Coben, why do we sit? Why do we do this? At this meeting for our old timers group, he once more gave us his answer, the last one I heard from him. It seemed to me that this response expressed his mature reflections gathered over a lifetime of living. What he said was concrete and easy to understand, and it was, to my ears, humble and deeply touching. I don't know if anyone else wrote down his words, but I did, as soon as I could find pencil and paper. I'd like to share his precious final response to our perennial question, why do we do this practice? We sit, Coben began slowly, to make life meaningful. The significance of our life is not experienced in striving to create some perfect thing. He looked down at his hands as he spoke. He was quiet for a long time. Then he continued. We must simply start with accepting ourselves. Sitting brings us back to actually who and where we are. Again, he waited, as he perhaps reflected upon his own life. This can be very painful. Self-acceptance is the hardest thing to do. Once again, he paused. So long at this point that I wondered if perhaps he had finished. But finally, he continued. If we can't accept ourselves, we are living in ignorance this darkest night. 
We may still be awake, but we don't know where we are. We cannot see. The mind has no light. He stopped and looked down. He looked around us in our small circle. He moved from face to face with his eyes, seeming to look deeply into each one of us as longtime students. Finally, he nodded slightly and concluded, practice is this candle in our very darkest room. Thank you very much.